I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today on the Debunking Economics podcast, it's currency manipulation for beginners. Uh, Donald Trump has had to go at China, Japan and Germany for currency manipulation. Is he right? Or are they just applying monetary policy like everybody else? Uh, President Trump reckons they're weakening their currency to make their exports cheaper and giving them an unfair advantage over America. But can they really do that? If so, how? And are they really doing that? Professor Steve Keen is with us again. Of course, it, it was a big part of Donald Trump's pre-election rhetoric, of course, wasn't it? But has he got a point? I mean, the, the WAN sank 13% in the three years to 2016. That's obviously helping them to sell their goods overseas. So is this a, a deliberate tactic on their part? And if so, is it is it unfair currency manipulation? Or is it just the natural order of things? Well, it's a combination of that. I mean, again, as I said, this is what I, I, I don't like commenting areas that I haven't done you know, detail work on this is and this is one of those areas however uh, the obvious elements behind this are that if you're running a trade surplus uh, over time you're accumulating your own you're becoming accumulating foreign currency and with that foreign currency you can intervene on the on the market and buy your own currency driving up the value of that currency or you can sell your own currency uh, and people will buy it because you've got a trade surplus you're not actually uh, in, a, in a weak situation uh, like England where if you if you sell you might not get any buyers <laughs> so there's a the potential to have what they call a dirty float and virtually every country in the world that uh, the, the, the central bank will worry about its exchange rate and if it does have the, the reserves to back itself up in China and Japan certainly have those reserves and they'll get involved in the dirty float as well so yep. that's that's part of the story the the, the main one which uh, matters the most because of its sheer scale of its trade surplus is germany and uh, that's not a currency manipulation that's led to them having that huge surplus uh it's it's the fact that they're part of a currency which is much weaker than the mark would be if the mark still existed yeah and that would have forced and, and so that's that is really i mean china and japan to some extent um you, you've had with, with japan japan's been industrializing and developing and moving ahead of the rest of the world in technology terms for a long time and that's been the basis of it maintaining a permanent trade surplus china's done it by coming from low wages but industrializing rapidly germany is, has, has already done all that uh, in the past, getting out of the, the, the chaos of the Second World War. But what they've done since the euro came in is really benefit out of a, dev- a currency which devalues their their currency, is a hypothetical currency, compared to the rest of the world. And they're now dragging in as big a surplus, I think, on their own as China. Yeah, well, they're so that, you know, which points to the, the whole problem behind the uh, the idea of the eurozone, doesn't it? Um, yeah. But, it, but if, if we look at China, it, it seems like they can't win, can they? Because, I mean, China is investing overseas. If they're investing overseas, then presumably that's going to devalue their currency because there's simply less demand for the yuan because there's less investment opportunity there. I mean, China is looking overseas because there's not enough to invest in locally. Isn't, isn't, isn't that well, part of they've, them? They've, they've had a, the boom that they financed after the financial crisis it was hugely financed by, by domestic credit. And that was basically 
uh, central bank, the central bank and the Communist Party telling private banks, we think it'd be a nice idea if you lent money. And if you do, the, the basic response to any Chinese Communist Party directive is if somebody tells you to lend money, you go start throwing at people on the streets. <laughs> Anybody with a pulse gets a loan. Um, so there's been an enormous uh, stimulus to private spending. Of course, most of that has gone into housing. Uh, we've all seen stories about the ghost cities, but also it's gone into office accommodation, building, uh, a lot of finance for state enterprises, state enterprises at the, at the, uh, at the local government level. Uh, so there's a huge level of spending and, and purchase of inputs. The huge part of the economy is, was the global economy is stimulated by that credit-based demand in China. But now there's so much classic malinvestment that's gone on that there's... You know, no no potential demand for housing for potentially for for decades if those buildings are all turned into real accommodation. A lot of them are simply concrete towers. Um, that that's removed the, the potential for demand domestically. The one potential that's left is dramatic infrastructure spending, which of course is state finance. So they're doing that on a grand scale with lots and lots of really impressive high speed rail going in. And, uh, and and all that sort of state construction. But they're also pushing demand offshore because they're still trying to maintain full employment in the Chinese economy. The last thing they want is to have unemployed uh, Chinese workers being forced to return back to the, to the uh, peasant life they had beforehand, which is feasible because a lot of them working in the coastal cities don't have residential rights there. Um, so that that is a real political danger for China. And one way to solve it is, is massive foreign aid. But that foreign aid says, well, we're going to build a, a railway. We're going to call this thing a new Silk Road. We're going to build it between China and, uh, and Europe, going through little places like Kazakhstan. And we're going to provide, uh, we're going to build all the infrastructure, the rail links, the road links and so on. Uh, and we'll provide Chinese labor to do it and Chinese money and, and we'll operate it afterwards. It's a way of extending the bubble by doing infrastructure spending outside their own economy. Yeah. And uh, if you're a private investor, if you are a wealthy uh, Chinese businessman or businesswoman and you've got a, a, you know, a load of lollies sitting in your, in your bank, uh, where are you going to invest if you're if you're concerned about uh, investing within China because perhaps the government is over investing? You're worried about the return you're going to get. You're going to invest overseas, presumably, aren't you? And if you if you're doing that, which gives you a, which gives you a capital outflow. So you you, yeah. you you you've got to be you know selling the yuan and buying American dollars. So you're you're you you know you're dumping dumping yuan on the market effectively to which, to get that money overseas, so, which lowers the value um, of the one. Which lowers the value of the iron. So the, you have all these these factors, which are not just driven by governments, but also by um, reactions of individuals to the behaviour of governments. In this particular case, right. So what does Trump do about it? I mean, if uh, in theory, uh, if there is found to be um, uh, that the China is manipulating its currency, and I don't know how how you investigate that, but my understanding is under U.S. law, the U.S. Overseas Private Investment Corp will stop financing any programs in China. But, you know, who's going to lose out in, in that arrangement? Is China going to go, oh, that's awful. We really don't want to lose that American investment when they're making all the investments themselves anyway. Yeah, I mean, the, the China really has done very well out of the last 30 years. So I think I told you I went to China in 1981, 82, and was actually there at the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone when they were laying the concrete for the place. So before it became the powerhouse it is now. And the t t deliberate policy of the Chinese was to get Western technology as fast as possible to pull themselves out of the Mao days and to also develop a class of Chinese communists, uh, capitalists, pardon me, by requiring the um, 
uh, any American firm to have a Chinese partner. And within five years, the Chinese partner had to own 50% of the business. And they really deliberately turned the ex-communists and, and, and also um, factory managers into capitalists. And that's where things like Foxon have come from. So they've, and they've built the incredibly effective supply chain system throughout the country so they can produce, even even without the, 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 the wage uh, advantage cost they've still got over the Americans, they've also got supply chain advantages. So they've done extremely well. And to, to America to attempt to re-industrialise now, it's, it really is the old uh, Sifzian uh, labour to try to get it uh, to succeed. So Trump, is, he's correct in his, his analysis of, of some of the causal factors. Um, and certainly American companies relocating production offshore has been a major contributor to that. Uh, whether his solution is going to apply and be successful, well, let's say I've got my doubts. Well, I mean, what, one of the things he wants to do because of, you know, his concerns over uh, devalued currencies, the fact that it is cheap in some countries, and also because he's concerned about, uh, you know, that making companies move overseas and uh, therefore not paying their tax. He talked about it during the uh, during the, the the campaign, and we wait and see whether he's going to follow through on it. But I think he will. He's going to place tariffs on imports, and that might be you know as much as twenty percent on all imports, which is a, a fairly extreme form of protectionism. Is protectionism, isn't it? I mean, and that, and that yeah, is, it is, it is, yeah, it, it is, and it shows. Um, I mean, the, the whole argument in favour of free trade is, is an intellectually barren one. As we've, I think we've talked about yeah. that already, maybe more detail yet again. But but the because it's been so successful for the wealthy, and <laughs> that includes Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, with a massive amount of his own local production off, off, offshore. Yeah. offshore um, it's something which has caused a huge part of the, the social conflict we're seeing in the West, where the, the wealthy, the capitalists and the financiers have done very nicely out of this and the workers have been screwed. And they're now fighting back through the only weapon they've got, which is the ballot box. Um, so, it, but it's it's ugly because in this sort of change, you will see, it's something like a, it's just like a tariff cut is disruptive as it was for the Australian manufacturing sector back in the 1973 when Gough Whitlam cut tariffs by 25% overnight. So whacking them on is disruptive. Disruptive. And you supply chains, you simply can't, uh, you suddenly make one of your supply chains 25% more expensive, but it's a functional supply chain. On the other side, you give an advantage to a dysfunctional supply chain. You don't necessarily get growth out of that. So it, uh, it, can, it can be something which is going to backfire. Uh, well, I and mean, there's always going to be things that you can't make in your country. So, for example, you can't grow bananas in the UK. It's too cold. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, an, an import tariff will just make bananas, if you were doing it in the UK, will make bananas 20% more expensive. Similarly, there are going to be things that are just uneconomic to produce in the United States that can be produced in other parts of the world. Uh, well, you know. for example, apparently I've seen claims that the iPhone, even yeah. if, they could, if they could move the iPhone production back from China to America, you're talking not because of wage costs, you're talking because of just they don't have the, the technical supply capabilities at the moment. Even if you paid American workers Chinese wages, you'd still find the iPhone being 20 or 25% more expensive and there'd be huge delays in actually getting the damn thing manufactured again as you got your, your tooling up to speed. So there are, it's, it's the sort of thing which happens very slowly and China's had you know, 30 years, 1980, 30-something 30 some, 30 years to be build that supply chain to train the engineers to train people as high, high operators of you know, highly skilled operators of complex machinery uh, all that stuff 
takes a long, long time to bring about. And what Trump is trying to do it is in a short, sharp shock approach. Well, and, uh, and isn't, isn't that going to be very similar to uh, what's happened with the devaluation of the pound in the UK? In that, uh, you know, if, if, it, if, you've, if you've got the idea, because you know, the UK faces the same danger, doesn't it? That uh, they may have to pay tariffs to export to Europe. And the argument is, uh, well, that's not going to be a problem, you know, argument by some people, because the pound is cheaper. And so that is going to make the exports cheaper. And that's going to be compen- you know that will be enough to compensate for the for the european tariffs couldn't it go the other way that if uh, if this uh, this extreme form of protectionism is introduced in the united states uh, everything from china is going to cost is going to have a 20% tariff put on it then china, then china is just going to have to say well okay we need to we need to sell cheaper uh, and, the, and and because there's less demand for those chinese exports as well it could lower the value of the wine so it becomes self-fulfilling guess what they do become cheaper just like the pound became cheaper the wine becomes cheaper it compensates for, it compensates for that tariff yeah there's this feedback effects that i don't think donald trump has got his head around uh that are going to make some of these things work be destructive rather than rather than constructive and of course the the, the main thing is that it just takes time for those sorts of changes to to flow through so you might get a 20 percent advantage in cost courtesy for devaluation but you don't have the industries to take advantage of it initially and it takes years for the investment skill uh, levels to be built up so it's 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 a slow process and devaluations need to be significant before they give an advantage there are arguments that english devaluation through the pound is significant enough to mean that a lot of what would have been sourced offshore can now be thought about it being done done domestically but you've got to have the the you know the engineering base and the skill base and the population population to do that and that's been reduced by the last 20 or 30 years of globalization so um you know there's 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 no denying that there's a problem for me obviously about the impact of globalization on the skill levels and the technological capabilities of western nations uh, but that doesn't mean it's a simple job to reverse it right and again and the other uh, uh, the consequence of course is if he does introduce the import tariffs is that china will respond They'll just say, well, we won't buy Boeing aircraft and we won't buy uh, iPhones yeah. and uh, yeah. we'll stop buying from you guys and see who see who feels the hurt the most. Yeah, and that's that's quite possible. So the uh, classic old trade war effect, which people falsely blame the Great Depression on, it was it was a, it was it was a reaction. The, the trade war stuff was a reaction to the Great Depression. It didn't cause the Great Depression, but it would have would have made things deeper uh, in in the in the transition. And that is partly what's going to come out of this. And of course, it also uh, sets up likelihood. And I'm straying a bit from economics here, but there are some islands off the coast of China that China has been very assertive about. And we have a very pig-headed uh, president with an incredibly pig-headed advisor who believes there should be war between America and China at some stage. Those islands could be the first flashpoint about it. Mm, yeah, it is scary stuff, isn't it? So it is. If you were Trump, and thank God you're not, you're a long way from him. Um, the um, it, w- if you believe that this, you know, this competitive advantage driven by exchange rates in economies like China. Um, how do you tackle that? Is there is there a policy you can put in place to try and protect your own industry uh, without putting up tariffs? 
to some extent you've got to have some level of protection. Um, this is again, this is empirical research supporting this, and Danny Roddick has done some of the best of that research. And we found that every country that has actually managed to industrialise to some degree has protected its domestic industries, but it's also stimulated domestic demand. And like in the case of Japan, for example, uh, after the war when it was completely you know, manufacturing capacity completely uh, devastated, you partly have the same sort of version of the Marshall Plan from America providing some of the reconstruction finance out of which they bought American uh, technology to start building their, uh, their manufacturing capability. But they then protected various industries like, for example, initially the motorbike industry where Honda came from, yeah. um, from bicycles to motorbikes. And uh, as part of the protection was that Japanese people simply couldn't afford to buy American cars or American motorbikes, so they had to make their own cheap versions. But they had two things going for them. One, they had pressure on the on the manufacturers saying, we're giving you protection now, but that's going to drop over time. You must become competitive with the, uh, with the West. And secondly, America, and its typical arrogance after the Second World War, thought it was the best of everything, didn't need any advice on how to improve its manufacturing uh, capabilities, so it completely ignored a certain person called Deming. And Deming had developed the idea of just-in-time manufacturing and the belief that you could actually improve both the quality and the cost of, of manufacturing by paying attention to, the, to retooling and minimising retooling as much as possible. And he was completely ignored in America, but the Ministry of Industry and Trade in, in Japan thought that was interesting. They invited him over to Japan and he was the one who advised the Japanese on how to revise their factories so that over time they'd become competitive with the americans through minimizing waste that's got the just-in-time manufacturing process yeah and lean manufacturing as it's called all these sorts of ideas iso 9000 as has been codified uh in industrial standards this this stuff was all done by the japanese using the advice of deming and that combination meant over time they became the industrial powerhouse they are now. And it was a, a mixture of all those policies. Now, if you wanted to reverse engineer the same thing in America, uh, then you have to, to some extent, say the Buy American program, which he can do at the government level, use that capability deliberately, uh, but also provide... You know, provide uh, pressure on the firms that you're doing it for saying this is not going to last forever you have to use this buy american capability to invest in your local economy and uh, if you do that you'll continue getting us buying if you don't we won't so use your buying power rather than using your tariff power and you pick your industries so you don't do anything across the board you say there's there's areas where free trade needs to exist because we're just never going to be able to compete but there's other areas where we need to uh, nurture and develop this industry and so we'll we'll pr provide some form of protectionism whether it's uh, through tariffs or some sorts of um, incentives or supports locally and um, uh -huh. you, you but you you choose your industries carefully yeah, and the, 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 again, you can. You, there is a way to do that. The mainstream economists say you can't do that sort of stuff. That's why I really like the work by the uh, Harvard Computing uh, Unit called the Atlas of Economic Complexity, because they've done and I've really advised people to take a look at their research. It's extremely high quality stuff. What they've done is by looking at the way in which industries develop, they they say that you need a diversified industrial structure to begin with, not a specialised one, and then that diversification will. If you look at it over time, you'll find that a lot of new industries are produced by combining ideas from different industries. So if you look at the pattern of industries you currently have and look where the, one, where the, where the areas you don't have, you can actually work out, can we actually make that industry 
can we produce the industry out of our current combinations or not? What's the closest one for us to work for? And you use that as a guide as the industries to move into. Yeah. Okay, very quickly, finally then, just l- let's look at Europe because you did mention that, you know, that uh, Germany has this, uh, this big trade surplus. Uh, Greece does not. Greece, Germany could do with a, a stronger currency. Greece, of course, could do with a weaker currency. Unfortunately, they've all just got the one currency. Is, mm. is there a way you can fix that without breaking up the euro? Is there, a way, is there some way that you can compensate for the, the fixed currency that exists in the eurozone and create other measures that accept that there is a, a cost of living difference from one country to the next, the value of labour is different, mm. the balance of trade is different, the fundamental economics of each country is different? Is there a way you can solve I mean, This is probably a conversation for another way, but is there another way well, you, you can do that while keeping the euro? There's two ways you could do it. One is using the European Investment Corporation as a way of doing infrastructure investment in the countries which are suffering trade deficits within the euro. That's one of Yanis Varoufakis' original proposals from from almost a decade ago now. That would be an effective way to go about it. The other is the countries have to set things up so that they have comparable inflation rates or you have inflation in Germany deliberately being allowed to be higher than inflation in Italy. The major reason why Mm. Germany's got this huge trade surplus is that its inflation rate's been lower than the rest of the Europe. They all agreed to a 2% target. Germany hit about 1%, France hit 2 and Italy hit 3 What that means is over year, every, every year, German, it, with a fixed exchange rate courtesy of the euro, German industry has been getting a 2% advantage compounded every year over Italian industry. And therefore, Mercedes are now much cheaper than Lamborghinis. Uh, so that on the huge price advantage, people are buying Mercedes in Italy rather than buying Lamborghinis or you know, Fiat's and whatever the comparison you want to make. And that's what screwed uh, Italian industry. So that would require Germany to agree to having a higher inflation rate than Italy. What are the odds of that? Mm. Zero. Yeah. But it would be, so yeah, so so yeah, so the European Central Bank, you're not doing your job until everyone meets your 2% or whatever your target is. Or, or for a while you make up for the fact that Germany was 2%, 1% below the target and Italy was 1% above. You've got, to, you've got to allow those inflation rates to diverge and allow Germany to have a higher inflation rate. Now, that is never going to happen. Mm. Politically, it's, it's, that would be suicide to any, any German politician who agreed to that. So uh, for that reason, for the inability to accept uh, the, the cure, we're going to continue with the disease until it uh, ends, the, ends the patient in a different fashion. Right. So uh, manipulation or monetary policy, that's the, I mean, they are, they are inextricably linked, aren't they, really? It's very difficult to say whether somebody is deliberately manipulating or they're just applying a monetary policy for, their, for the good of their economy. Uh, but I don't know whether we've drawn any conclusion here, apart from the fact it's really complicated. I mean, I mean, where, where does the world go on this? I, I guess it's, um, you know, how, how do we deal with these inequalities of trade? Because at the end of the day, what we all want to achieve is a, is a positive trade balance. Effectively, which we can't all do. So that we have a, that's why we have the ideas of limitations on uh, on on both surplus and deficit nations under Keynes's Bancor proposal, which we didn't go with. Yeah. And look at the world we've ended up in as a result. Yeah, and we did talk about that a few weeks back, and it's definitely worth uh, listening to that one if you haven't already. Good to talk, Steve. Catch you again soon. Okay, mate. Bye. And there we are. Another edition of the Debunking Economics podcast. We'll be back again very soon in a few days' time, probably with another one. Uh, Thanks for joining us. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll catch you then. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.